Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Usually on this show, we take you into the dark depths of unmade horror movies, but we're not doing that today. Sometimes we talk to independent filmmakers, and sometimes we do a review show, and that is what's happening. So for the next two weeks, we're going to be uncovering four of the scariest, weirdest, wildest selections at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. Today, we're going to be reviewing two movies, In My Mother's Skin and Run, Rabbit, Run. With us is a returning guest judge. We've got Chad Collins. Chad is a staff writer here at Dread Central, but he's also a lot more than that. So, Chad, how's it going? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. Chad, do me a favor and reintroduce yourself to the Development Hell audience. Of course. So, like Josh said, I'm Chad Collins. I'm a staff writer at Dread Central. I'm also a features writer at Slash Film. And then I do some freelance for a few other sites whenever the inspiration strikes. I'm really, really happy to be back here. I'm happy to have you back, too. You've actually been on two of my favorite episodes so far. I don't know if you know that. We've had you on Scream, the unmade sequels. How do you feel about the Scream 6 trailer? I am very excited for it. I like the darker tone. 
I think the change of setting is something the franchise has needed for a while. Hopefully, you know, if all things go well, it sort of really becomes the case study and like why Scream needed to change. And I think it makes a really good point for why Scream is back all these years later. I cannot wait to see Scream hit Montreal. And I think you're right. I think it's going to be hopefully a little bit refreshing. On a different note, I know that you and I are both covering the Sundance Film Festival which for me is really exciting because it's my first year doing it. I'm just wondering, how's your Sundance going so far? It is going remarkably well. Um, Not, you know, make this all about me, but I'm really thrilled. So this is my third year, but technically second official year covering the festival. Mm -hmm. My first year back in 2021, I did it as a sort of assignment basis. With old Dread leadership, they needed some additional coverage. And I was asked to do that, but I wasn't really formally involved in the festival. I did it last year and I had a remarkably great time. Mm-hmm. And this year I applied and was selected for the Sundance Press Inclusion Initiative. So that was a really great honor. I feel very accomplished for that. And it's exciting to see a film festival really try to cultivate and celebrate new writers, new critics, and really get them involved in the festival. So that has mm-hmm. added a fun cool compelling wrinkle to Sundance this year what is the Sundance inclusion initiative what what is it exactly so the Sundance press inclusion initiative it's sort of I don't want to say a scholarship fund but it's an initiative for underrepresented members of the press and so there's a stipend affiliated with it but it's just an opportunity to meet with press um, from underrepresented communities share your work collaborate with them and then the Sundance Film Festival, writ large really tries to encourage and sort of cultivate and give them access to resources, panels, things that they otherwise might not have access to. I think maybe at the end we'll talk a little bit about what other movies we're excited about and what other movies we've seen. But if it's okay with you, I'm kind of really excited to jump into our first movie. How do you feel? I'm very excited. I love this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And I love this movie too. And for those that haven't read it yet, Chad's Dread Central Review for In My Mother's Skin, you gotta check it out. I would say it's unmissable. Chad, would I be able to give you a little bit of a seminar on this film, even though you know everything there is to know about it? Yes, I would love that. In My Mother's Skin is a Filipino horror title. It is written and directed by Kenneth Dagaton. Okay, so what is the plot according to Sundance, Chad? So it's the Philippines, 1945. Nearing the end of World War II, an affluent family lives stranded in their country mansion, tormented by the occupying Japanese soldiers who are losing grip over the island nation. Rumors spread that the patriarch, Aldo, stole Japanese gold and stashed it somewhere nearby. Aldo knows that his family will be slaughtered if they find the riches, so he escapes to seek help from the Americans. Soon they fear he will never return while sickness overtakes the mother. Searching for help, their young daughter Tala mistakenly places her trust in a beguiling, flesh-eating fairy who desires to consume them all. Writer-director Kenneth Dogaton imbues this ghastly fairy tale with an intriguing mix of Catholicism and Filipino folklore to conjure up a nightmare vision of a war-torn land and enough fly-covered oozing flesh to be seared permanently into your memory. This movie is gross. This movie is beautiful. 
And this movie is glamour. Would you agree with those three statements? It is. I laughed at the violent fleshing being fair because I think we've all been there. Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie was so beautiful. And I think the first thing I'd like to get into would be sort of a hybrid between the performances and the characters. So the first person I want to talk about is the role Tala, played by Felicity Kyle Napool. So, yeah, as the synopsis said, she's a young daughter who during the end of the second world war is alone with her brother and her mother and the housekeeper as her father is off sort of making these dealings with the with the americans trying to save them uh there is this gold subplot involved but basically tella's alone with her ill mother and her little brother and a housekeeper and her mother's ailing they're running out of food and they're constantly worried for their safety because of the soldiers so there's a lot on this girl's shoulder she's really strong but she's also like she's got a lot going on and she's unable to deal with it all which makes her a easy target for this very glamorous flesh-eating fairy who appears in sort of the gin evil genie route gives her some options but none of them are very good Um, How did she leave an impression on you? So I always have a hard time, I think, with children in horror because they tend to fall into like a few categories Mm -hmm. and most often and not as like a spoiler for what's to come, but sometimes they can be very irritating. (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And so I I always appreciate when there's a really grounded child performance and um, I think Felicity Kyle Napool did a really good job of balancing just sort of the resolve of a young yeah. kid who's in those circumstances because those are unusual circumstances. And I think there's there was a grittiness and a determination to her, but there was also that element of just childlike, you know, whimsy and just not really fully processing the full weight of what she was enduring. Mm-hmm. And I like that when a kid is both simultaneously, you know, I hate to say old for her age, but she was mature in a lot of ways, you know, prematurely because of her circumstances. But she never didn't feel like a kid. No, I, I agree with that. I also agree that kids in horror, no, kids in cinema, it's a tough thing. I'm not a fan of kids as they are in real life, but it's so difficult to like have a child carry the weight of a plot in a film. I don't know why that is exactly, but Oh, I think a big part of it is that like, I don't think kids should be actors. I think every kid in every movie should be CGI'd in because it's just not ethical to put (laughs) kids in movies to work them with the, like what it takes to make a film. Like that's insane amount of work that kids should not be doing. Anyway, these kids really pulled it off, and especially Felicity Kyle Nepal as, as Tala. Really beautiful performance. Um, a lot going on just in her eyes. Okay, so her little brother, played by James Mevi Estrala, I think his name is Bayani. Another really great performance. Definitely has less to do in this film. She's sort of, the older sister is just trying to protect him for the majority of the film and sort of keep him from the horrible darkness that's sort of invading you sort of you you see on his face sort of this understanding that things are falling apart especially when it comes to the tragedy of their mother i think he and the mother character hmm, sort of really collide in a lot of really grotesque and sad ways and there's just a couple of moments with this 
little brother character that are so tragic that it's difficult to watch. How do you feel? No, I I agree. And I think that tragedy is, you know, a core part of his character. Definitely, I think from the early goings, I knew that this was going to be a character that was just there to break my heart. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Paula is certainly more involved and active in trying to resolve these circumstances. And Bayani is just the sort of unsuspecting victim of it all, right? He just is there to endure other people's choices and the consequences of other people's actions. Mm-hmm. Because he's too young to really do anything himself. And, you know, he's first placed his trust in his father, who has, you know, presumably stolen some gold. And then his mother gets ill and his sister is off. Um, and there's a really remarkable scene, I thought, you know, midway through with the tension between Tala and Bayani, where Bayani's just sick of Tala. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember when Tala brings some food home, and he's just so far gone at that point that this food is nothing, right? Mm-hmm. He just wants things to be normal, whatever normal means for him. And that was a sad scene that, that broke my heart a little bit. He is a heartbreaker. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited for people to check out this performance. Both of these kids are really doing some spectacular work for their age. Really, yeah. Another important character is their mother. So the two of these kids are basically doing their best to care for their mother as she is basically dying. Would you say she has tuberculosis? That's what it seems mm-hmm. like to me. And so, yeah, the mother is slowly but surely succumbing to tuberculosis. She's coughing. She's coughing up blood. There's a lot of really grotesque body horror stuff that happens with the mom. But for me, the worst of it is just Mm. that realist dying of tuberculosis in 1945 moments where she's just coughing on the bathroom floor and there's blood coming up and she can't even feel bad to turn away from her daughter because she's just like just in the middle of dying it's really really brutal this movie overall much more brutal than i was expecting it to be we'll talk a little bit more about it later but it's in a bit of a guillermo del toro-esque sort of brutality that i really love so the mother's character definitely gets more interesting She's passing away, and an evil fairy presents a solution to Tala. She says, your mother's dying, but I have a solution. And the solution is the fairy presents this cicada or this bug that if she gives to her mother, will sort of live within her mother and cure her, but it will sort of live in her body, whatever that means. And it works, but it's a much worse solution than if they had just let her die. And that's sort of where the title of this movie comes from. So I thought she was frightening. I (laughs) agree with her early illness. I think what Dagatan did really well, um, and even the Sundance description had that, the, you know, um, oozing flesh covered in flies is, (laughs) there was like a humidity and just a heat to everything. And everything just felt rotten and spoiled and decayed. And even before the introduction of this, you know, alleged cure, for um, the mother, it just, it was so icky. And you Mm -hmm. knew, right, they don't have resources, they didn't have medicine. It was just a woman dying. And there was nothing anyone could do. And that was, that was hard to watch. And I think it definitely sort of um, was an early introduction to just how gross, gorgeously gross, but gross this movie was going to get. And if the mother dies, too, it's not just one person that's dying, it's going to be all of them. And like the daughter Tala is aware and is sort of pleading with her mother to find a solution to their food issue because if the, she knows there's a chance her father's not going to come home and she knows there's a chance they're going to lose their mother. But 
um, her mother isn't able to sort of come to grips with this and that leaves Tala helpless. And it's really sad. Mm-hmm. I think if this is true, but I'm just going to say, it, I think my favorite character in this film is the housekeeper, Amor, played by Anjali Bayani. She is, <laughs> it's not supposed to be funny and it's not, <laughs> but she she's just over it and she's doing her best for these rich people that she's working for but everything is just falling to shit and at one point when everything is as bad as it can possibly be and Tala is pleading for help from from this very pleasant lovely housekeeper that I think has loved them at one point she just turns to them and says I am just so tired of your family. And it's just one of my favorite (laughs) moments in this movie. And I remember reading your review today, Chad, and you mentioned that she has just like such an expressive face. And it's so true. Out of all the characters in this film, all the actors in this film, it's her face that you're not going to forget at the end of the day. I think the exact same. She, so I think just from, I want to say like my familiarity, right? Whenever you get like housekeepers in these kind of like fairy tale stories, mm-hmm. I'm always used to them being like sort of supplemental maternal figures, right? Like your mother is very ill, but you have me here. And I'm used to those mm-hmm. kinds of relationships. And I did find it to be very subversive and amusing that she was so over it. <laughs> <laughs> she was dumb. Like, I get that your mother is sick, but like, I'm not your mother, right? I am just trying to do what I need to do to survive. Um, mm-hmm. But there was also some pathos to it, right? You know, oh, Amor, yeah. her character, she was very clear that she had her own family to care about. Like, she cannot continue to be in the muck with this family. And I do think there's love. There's definite love here. But by the time the bullshit hits the fan and is clearly becoming a supernatural zombie threat, she's done and ready to get out of there. And I, I respect that. I do too. And I think with, you know, sort of like the, the fairy tale trappings, you know, all the fairy tales, it's, you know, people need to come together and work together and try to overcome obstacles together. And like with a lot of Guillermo del Toro's work, I think it targeted really well just how in these times of great suffering, people don't have the privilege to do that. They can't mm-hmm. just simply be there for everybody. They have to at a certain point prioritize themselves and prioritize their own loved ones. So whatever love Amor had for this family, you know, rations are low, there's no food, you know, presumably, you know, um, Aldo is perceived to be dead because he hasn't returned home yet. Mm -hmm. You know, what else is she supposed to do for this family? Nothing. Save yourself, Amor. (laughs) Get out. And her expressive, her face the whole time, I mean, just really in these (laughs) scenes with no dialogue just seeing her respond with her face just the the absolute mess around her she's an icon and you know what speaking of icons i think we're going to talk about uh another very incredible character the evil fairy played by jasmine curtis smith this is a horror icon unlike any i think maybe we've ever seen before The evil fairy is not presented in any crazy prosthetic makeup. She doesn't have any kind of non-natural features, except for the fact that she is in a very theatrical costume. Um, It is very beautiful, very regal, very camp, very colorful and golden. And 
almost to the point where it does feel supernatural. It does feel like it's not of this earth, but it's all costume design and it's all performance. None of it is supernatural on the surface. And this fairy is evil as hell and is doing all of these things, but all of the violence comes out through her surrogates. So she's able to sort of possess people, and those are the people that are now flesh-eating sort of in her place. So whenever we see her, she's just an evil genie energy trying to trick people into making some very bad decisions. How did you feel about this antagonist, Chad? I loved the design. I think that was one of the first things I shared with you when I gave you my sort of initial feedback to the movie Mm -hmm. is, I think they just did a really good job of designing her. I think especially with horror and just monsters. And I would, you know, beyond just the surrogates, right? I, I think the evil fairy, that flesh-eating fairy, that sort of encompasses what the movie's monster, you know, visually is, mm-hmm. right? That's what people are going to take away. And I think that's really hard to do. One that's going to stand out and feel distinct from every other, you know, horror movie out there. So I think the practical route worked really, really well. I didn't know what to expect, but I'm glad they went in that direction. And I do like that, like some of my favorite horror villains, um, I think that she's there sort of on the periphery, right? And she's guiding people, but she's not ultimately actively responsible for everything, right? There's always the choice. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes for a more dynamic, interesting villain. Versus one who's actually getting involved in the nitty gritty. It's you had a choice to make. You made your choice. And this is what happens because of that. That's scary. There being accountability and on some level it being our fault that everything has fallen to terrible shit. That makes it worse. It's one thing if some horrible monster is doing all of these terrible things to you. But it's another thing if it's a little bit on your own shoulders. And she makes that a reality. Absolutely. And for me, so much of the tension once, you know, this plot is sort of really set into motion is that Tala is just, you know, she's a little girl. She's a kid. Mm -hmm. And there was that, I think, really remarkable tension of ultimately, right, like these are choices Tala is making. And that's why these things are happening. But she's also a kid and she doesn't have the foresight to really Mm -hmm. think these things through and to see almost like her desperation punished because you know desperate kids don't make great choices desperate people don't let alone kids Mm -hmm. and i think it did a really good job of using that throughout and i think it cultivated a lot of tension because on one hand you know i was worried for tala and i was worried for bayani and their mother and then at the same time simultaneously i'm thinking well tala is the one who made this choice Mm -hmm. and You know, how far should this go? How much does she need to suffer as a consequence of this? Yeah, but, you know, just like the horrible brutalities of war, like, life is not fair and terrible things happen to people that don't deserve it, like kids. And something about that honesty is what makes this movie so sad and so scary. And the first time or the first couple of times even where we meet Jasmine Curtis Smith's evil fairy character, I wasn't so convinced that it was working for me. 
But then all of a sudden, you're just watching her have conversations with Tala and you're just, you're forced based on the costume design to really focus in on her facial features and her expressions. And holy shit, they became so scary. Just like the little, the little choices this actor is making with her face, all of a sudden are just so big and so important and like really worrisome. It's so good. Guys, you got to see this movie. I, I don't feel this way very often. It's very good. Um, Chad, would you be cool if we move on to the visual, the direction by Kenneth Dagaton and sort of how we responded to the way this movie looked and felt? Absolutely. I, I think there's going to be a lot of conversation about um, comparisons to Guillermo del Toro's possible influence on this feature. I'm not sure if there was necessarily like 100% Guillermo del Toro influence, but it's very difficult not to draw those lines between the films because it has like a lot of similarities to Pan's Labyrinth and the fact of its setting. Like the setting is very familiar. It's during um, a large war. You're, you're set in this sort of very um, castle or large mansion in the countryside and focusing on a very interesting and engaging like child who's a girl. Um, very capable child who happens to be a girl. And then at the same time as all that, it's mirrored with a very magical, whimsical, um, sort of earthy, supernatural quality. And they go hand in hand so nicely. They braid together so well, even though they're such different vibes. And that happens a lot in Paz Labyrinth and other Guillermo del Toro films. And it happens a lot in this one. But unlike in the other movie we're going to talk about today, these similarities, even possible homage, homages, really work. And it really just adds to the landscape of horror in such like a nice and engaging way. Um, how do you feel about there being possible del Toro influences here? So I mentioned in my review, it at first, when I first started the movie, it was one of the first things I clocked. Because like you said, you had a young girl, it was in a war-torn setting. You had this sort of isolated sort of country home. And then you had the introduction of a possibly malevolent supernatural figure mm -hmm. who was there sort of guiding the child, um, like the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth with, I believe, Ophelia in Pan's Labyrinth? I think so. I'm going to say Ophelia. I'm very, I'm confident in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope I'm not wrong. So... I saw so many of those parallels, and at first I worried, like with a lot of homage, that the movie was going to get too comfortable in that and not really work toward breaking free from it. But what I really appreciated is that while it might have been sort of a springboard, it ultimately did become its own thing. It was certainly, I think, more dour and gruesome and a little bit less hopeful than some of Guillermo del Toro's work. I've always looked at his work as very humanist and there's always some sort of like optimistic light at the end. Mm -hmm. And you can see it even in the very dark moments. I was going to say not so much on uh, Nightmare Alley, but please keep going. No. <laughs> Nightmare Alley being the sole exception. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially when, though, when he has children involved. And this just felt very grim to me. And I think it worked really well. And I think it ultimately did become its own thing. I think part of that had to do with very distinct cultural influences and 
just really, I think the commitment to its core conceit, right? Like if we're going to have flesh eating fairies, we're going to have flesh eating fairies. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I think that Dagaton, you might've used that as, as an influence, but it ultimately became very much his own thing. And it felt like a very singular vision, which I always appreciate. So I think, I think it did, like you noted, it did a really good job of merging sort of the realist with the fantastical. Mm-hmm. One of the settings I mentioned in my review that was a real standout to me was the church in the woods, which mm-hmm. was just this sort of abandoned church. And then within, there's this sort of majestic hollowed out tree and like a doorway almost in the trunk of that tree. And I think it did a really good job of making those feel organic to the world without feeling like they were sort of outliers or they didn't belong. They were sort of natural extensions. All of the supernatural elements, I think, were natural extensions of the world. And the world itself, I think, felt very broken visually in a, in a really effective way. Just like quick pans over a creek full of bodies. Everything about, felt very hot and sort of decaying that there really wasn't any life left there on the grounds, in the house. And I think it visually matched just the desperation because even the landscape around them was falling apart. And as much as Tala wanted to cling to some hope, even her home didn't look like her home anymore. And I'm curious because I know that Prime Video has picked this up for distribution later in the year. And whenever movies are released through those sort of streaming services, I always wonder about how they're going to be received because I think people are going to have an expectation, especially audiences who aren't familiar with it, and it might not be quite what they expect because this is definitely a little bit moodier. It's more atmospheric. It's, I don't want to say a slow burn, but you know the grotesqueries sort of pile up until they really just explode at the end. And I'm curious to see how a streaming audience will respond to that and whether they'll think it's scary or not. I'm really glad you brought up the fact that it's been picked up by Prime. I also thought that was kind of interesting. I'm not sure how audiences there are going to react to it. I almost think a smaller SVOD platform like Shudder would have been a, a good, healthy place for it because I think they'd be a little bit more used to not experience. Well, less Hollywood-esque horror. But hopefully it finds itself an audience there. I know another slow Sundance selection from last year, Master, found some success there. So hopefully um, hopefully people get it. I agree. I was wondering, Go ahead. Let's move on to final thoughts, and I would also hope for a star rating. So yeah, can I get final thoughts and a star rating from you, Chad? Final thoughts and a star rating. So, spoiler for my review, four and a half stars <laughs> out of five. Mm-hmm. I have definitely become, I think, more judicious with my four and four and a half and even five stars because I really want to try to preserve those for movies that really make an impact on me. And when I finished this, I sat with it for a while and I drafted some notes and I tried to piece everything together. And I didn't settle on a score until I was actually drafting the review the following day. 
And mm -hmm. the more I, it sat with me, the more it stuck with me. There were certain images that I certainly don't want to spoil that I just could not get out of my head. And <laughs> the way that they were framed, just almost sterile and matter of fact, was really, I think, haunting to me. And I don't, I don't have that response to movies often. And I think just as like a dark fairy tale, which I am innately biased toward, I should say. Mm -hmm. Like if you give me a fairy tale and make it dark, I'm there from the start. Mm -hmm. But I liked how much of this felt very singular, how much of it felt like its own thing. And I was just, I was really, really impressed. I think it's one that is going to sit with me for a while. Um, I'm going to return to it. I think once it becomes available again on prime, I'm looking forward to sharing it with other people. Mm -hmm. So four and a half. I love that. And I think it's earned. Um, I also really, really love this film, really drawn to it. I too am definitely partial to a horror fairy tale. As nerdy as it is, this whole podcast began because of my obsession with the American Mickey's Atlas adaptation that never happened. And so I really fell for that angle of this film. Unlike you, I'm a little bit less experienced with international horror. Definitely see like the basics, but I'm not as in the trenches as you are. And I've actually learned of some very cool films because of you and your reviews. And this one... I'm hoping turns out to be a staple. It's really beautiful. It's really upsetting. It's very emotional. And it's, I don't think we're going to be seeing anything like it for a while. So I really hope audiences appreciate it. I'm going to give it four stars. Really happy that this is one of the first things I got to see at Sundance this year. It really energized the start of my festival journey. And on that note, Chad, do you think you're ready and have the energy to jump into our second movie of the day? Absolutely. <laughs> so the next one is going to be a bit of a different turn on every possible level. We are going to be discussing Run, Rabbit, Run. This is directed by Dana Reed and written by Hannah Kent. It's an Australian horror selection at the Sundance Festival. The second one from Australia that I've seen this year, actually. And what's interesting about this film... And what's great about it is that it was made almost entirely by women. All of like the really important above-the-line roles were women, including DOP, Bonnie Elliott, and uh, the production designer, Vanessa Kern. So would it be okay with you, Chad, if I gave the Sundance description of this movie? Go for it. Fertility doctor Sarah begins her beloved daughter Mia's seventh birthday expecting nothing amiss. But as an ominous wind swirls in, Sarah's carefully controlled world begins to alter. Mia begins behaving oddly, and a rabbit appears outside of their front door, a mysterious birthday gift that delights Mia, but seems to deeply disconcern Sarah. As days pass, Mia becomes increasingly not herself, demanding to see Sarah's long-estranged, hospitalized mother, the grandmother that she's never met before, and fraying Sarah's nerves as the child's bizarre tantrums begin to point towards Sarah's own dark history. As a ghost from her past re-enters Sarah's life, she struggles to cling to her distant young daughter. Would you say that's a fair description of this film, Chad? I don't want to sound shady. It 
does sound much better than what it <laughs> <laughs> ends up being. <laughs> it does sound better, but I will say it does feel accurate in the ways it's that accurate. it's pulling a sort of bad impression of the Babadook. Um, like the last film, I kind of want to start by talking about the characters and the actors playing them. So, Chad, what was your impression of Sarah Snook, famous from her role on Succession, playing the role of Sarah? How did she affect you in this? So, I have been infected by Sarah Snook since <laughs> 2014, and I have been looking forward to talking about this. <laughs> so, I saw her in, I believe, Jezebel is mm-hmm. the title. It was a just totally dumped Blumhouse release from several years ago. And it's not great. Um, okay. Although I do respect it. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It is I'm so not. actually hostile to being a ghost story, despite being a ghost story. Okay. Like this movie, kind of. <laughs> I respect it. Um, so I was just like transfigured, right? Sarah Snook is the lead there. And then I followed that up with, I think, the Speared Brothers' Predestination. Mm-hmm. That also f- features Sarah Snook alongside. Why am I forgetting his name? I'm sure he's great. Ethan Hawke. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I almost called him the Black Phone. <laughs> so Sarah Snook was phenomenal in that. And then she appeared in Winchester about the Winchester she did? house. Who was she in she that? Did. I don't remember at all. She was one of the women with a candle. I think she was also a housekeeper, but she just she wandered around with a candle and was frequently spooked. That fucking movie. Okay, I didn't know. But I've always, I've always liked her because I, I don't often, you know, feel this way. But sometimes I'll see a performer, and I'll just be like, they're getting bad material, but they're so good. <laughs> and I think that Sarah Snook is undoubtedly the highlight of run rabbit run i think she makes sarah both you know sympathetic but also i think she does a good job of keeping her secrets close to her chest and you never quite know how to feel about her but there's just like this innate magnetism to sarah snook as a performer and if run rabbit run has anything i think it's sarah snook and it's something filmmakers should pay attention to yeah, I 100% agree with you that she is the best part of this film. But you know what? That's not an insult because she is a huge part of this film. There are not that many actors on the screen. The majority of this film takes place between Sarah and her daughter, Mia. And there are so many ways that this character could go wrong. There's so many ways that this role could be overacted, underacted, or, I don't know, boring. But... While the script and the direction and the influence all do kind of fail it in the end, Sarah Snook um, never falters. She's always interesting to look at in this movie, no matter what she's up to. And it keeps you there. It keeps this movie, it keeps you from losing this movie. And I, I think it's really lucky to have her. Yeah. She's also an executive producer on it, which is very interesting. Are you familiar with um, Succession? So I am not. I'm familiar with it, but I have not seen it. Mm. I'm not that familiar with it either. Definitely seen a good chunk of the first season. And because I am, you know, a God-fearing gay man, she's definitely the best part of it as basically (laughs) the only role that is a woman. 
And so that's the only role that I really cared to keep my eye on. And she's fascinating on it. And it's one of those HBO shows that I do think I will return to and finish up eventually. Mostly because my friend Samantha um, will probably make it happen. Very aggressive about it. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move down the road to Lily Latore, who plays Mia, but also goes by another mysterious name at some point. Um, I'm going to start with you, Chad. We were talking about kids and horror before with the amazing performances in My Mother's Skin. How did this child and horror performance strike you? So I would like to start by saying that I think that Lilith Tor was very good. It's I, I think performances are hard, especially getting them from a child performer. That has mm-hmm. to be such a difficult thing. Yeah. And I respect, you know, the performance of Mia, um, especially because the role of Mia needed to do a very particular thing. Well, I don't always feel this way. Um, I know that, um, you know, there's some parallels here with the Babadook and so my partner he's mentioned before that he has not yet made it all the way through the Babadook (laughs) because he cannot handle the kid fair he finds it so grating that he just cannot finish the movie and I think it's a risk you run when you have just very disrespectful disturbed children on screen that in the same way they are irritating the people around them in the movie they run the risk of doing that to the audience and there were times just with Mia as a character not with Lily Latour as a performer where I just I couldn't handle this kid screaming (laughs) anymore yeah I I fully agree with that I'm not I'm someone that quite likes the Babadook even though it's clear that, yes, that character, the child character there is very difficult to handle. And as much as the character of Mia is constantly screeching and screaming, and it's very difficult to sort of see past that, also hearing Sarah Snook constantly just screaming, Mia, like every five seconds in the film was also difficult to get past. This, These two were hard to watch together. And I do think sometimes they were just kind of going in a circle and not really getting anywhere um yeah it's it's not great sometimes it's tough to talk about performances by children even though we're doing it a lot today yes the performance here is really good like she's quite a remarkable child actor but um yeah the movie is not doing her a lot of favors the movie is treating this child as quite i don't know um grating and difficult to watch And it made it, I don't know, less... Ultimately, I like the movie less because of the screaming child archetype here. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, We talked in about In My Mother's Skin about, like, the amazing homage and, like, the refreshing homage to Del Toro, specifically Pan's Labyrinth, and how that film really made it work and really balanced its influence with doing something new in the horror space. And it was like really kind of amazing to behold in that film. Do you think that this film (laughs) manages a similar balance, but with the Babadook? I I do not. I, (laughs) I firmly 
believe the Duke is a masterpiece. I know it's one of those ones now that especially several years after release, it got so much hype that people couldn't help but be disappointed. And admittedly, when I first saw it, I sort of felt that. I liked it, but I didn't love it. And it wasn't until I'd watched it again that I really could appreciate everything Jennifer Kent was doing there. Um, I sound like... Uh, What's her name from Scream? I still prefer the Babadook. Yeah. Um, I could see it. Um, I think it wanted to, especially it's sort of like Australian sort of origins and setting. I just, I think what it tried to do ultimately and where it, where it sort of derailed some is I do appreciate the Babadook for being very internal for a lot of it. And being very mindful with how it doles out its sort of external, explicit scares. And this movie didn't seem to have any sort of control on that. Whether it wanted to be psychological, whether it wanted to be something more supernatural. And it was hard for me to get a handle on what exactly I was supposed to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. And I think that kept me sort of removed from it for some of the runtime. Oh, definitely. It was a little bit messy on the emotional and the scare front where I didn't, it felt like, yeah, I didn't totally know what direction this movie was trying to go to. I agree at any given moment, other than the fact where it felt just a little bit too familiar. We have the monstrous mother trope that we see as a progression in this film. And we see as a progression in the Babadook. And we also have the, um, hereditary influence in my opinion as well with the um, unwell like grandmother character who might be sinister and there are moments where the music feels like it was blatantly ripping off some of the score from hereditary and maybe that's just my takeaway but like it felt almost shocking in moments where this movie wasn't really standing on its own two feet at any moment um, am I being harsh or did that did that resonate with you in a similar way? No, I, I think you're right. And I know that additionally, I know that I think Netflix has picked this up. Yep. And of course, that wasn't the intent when they made the movie, but it definitely feels like a movie that Netflix will be able to say, if you liked The Babadook or you liked Hereditary, here's something else. <laughs> Um, it feels like it exists yep. or some of its most crucial elements only exist in relation to other movies. Um, you know, a way to explain it is it's like this or it's sort of like that. And I definitely felt that with the score and much like I mentioned with the Babadook, I don't think it had the firm command that Ari Aster had with Hereditary to really make that sort of like generational trauma angle work. Mm -hmm. it again it was one of those i never knew who i'm supposed to be responding to um you know and how you know that that mother character joan how she what kind of influence she really had on sarah snook's character joan did nothing wrong justice for joan (laughs) justice for joan joan would just appear and it, it's funny because you mentioned earlier with so many scenes of just uh, Sarah and Mia, you know, arguing with each other and Sarah shouting Mia. And it felt like, especially in the early goings, anytime Joan was there, it was just Sarah Snook going 
And I feel like there were three scenes at least of this getting into an argument and then leaving, <laughs> like packing up and storming out. And by I, the two, a, third yeah, time, he yeah. stormed out. Um, there was I a thought, meme are we on Twitter recently where the, someone took um, every time from Gossip Girl that Serena says, I have to go and put it all together in one like Uber clip. And it was very funny because it's a million times. I did see and that. And I think I'll do that with Joan and Sarah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Serena or or um, Sarah, same person. Okay, something that I really want to talk about today is creepy kids classroom crayon art because this is a trope that if I never see again in horror, I think I'd be okay with it. Um, it happens here in a very ineffective way, and so I thought that maybe if it's okay with you, I could run us through some creepy kid drawing crayon moments in horror history. I would love um, that. So definitely Mama. I remember there being some creepy crayon um, action in that. But more importantly, Insidious had some very good creepy kid crayon art. Insidious did it well. So good for Insidious. Um, the Ring, of course. Probably, in my opinion, the most iconic creepy kid crayon moment. Um, I'm also seeing orphan silent night deadly night but also the shining i forgot the shining has a very iconic creepy kid drawing moment and while it's not on this list i think the exorcist does it too oh my god sinister oh this list is longer than i thought any of these strike a bell for you any of these leave an impression on on your spooky heart they do and you know i (laughs) watching this the moment i saw the moment sarah met with the school teacher i said this kid has drawn something and i knew that <laughs> I, just, I knew it i knew she was going to show her a drawing and it was going to have a bunch of black smudges and it was going to be blatantly <laughs> sinister oh my god um it's in and so many I, movies, Chad. Sorry. I don't know why they go back to it so Every much fucking time can i just continue this list i'm sorry because it's so long tales from the hood the butterfly effect my soul to take uh sinister Dark Skies, The Prophecy, The Shining, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Mikey, Orphan, The Ring. It just doesn't stop. Can we put an end to the madness? I'm not even into it. I'm I'm into it sometimes because I do love a trope. I think mm-hmm. I've actually shared with you before, like put a thunderstorm in a movie and I'm I'm there. Like mm-hmm. thunderstorm setting during a scary movie. It's a cliche. I'm 100% there for it. I love thunder. I love lightning. Let me see that lightning flash through the like drapes. Give it to me. <gasps> Um, so I love a creepy drawing, but like developmentally within these movies, it doesn't even always make sense because mm. like, you know, kids, when they communicate that way, it's because they don't have another like way to communicate what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why are all of these like apparently like cognitively well-developed kids like, you know, close to like 10 sometimes, why are they still drawing their feelings like this? Like very dark. It's like, at some point, like, can I just have one of these kids vocalize it? Like, hi, I have an imaginary friend who's not imaginary. Instead of having to see a crown drawing and being like, oh, it's the family. And who is this? And it's like, oh, this is Bob. He lives in my closet. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just lazy. Well, one thing, like a thunderstorm, I think anyone can get that. I don't think that's lazy. I think like, Thunder thunderstorms are carte blanche, but this trope, like you better earn this trope because it's just lazy. It's just like we've seen it a hundred and fifty kabillion times. You know what? I 
I'm going to call it like the childhood equivalent of the uh, Google search. Oh my you God. Know, or the like the horror movie. Mid-act. Yeah. You're on the which computer. Is an, evo- an evolution from the, what's it called when you're at the library and you're doing the scans. Cause it's an upgrade from that. Yeah. And then I love it too, when they can't even afford like the Google license. So they're on like <laughs> rocket. <laughs> yeah. Like super search. Now. Wow. You know, what'd be great is a gallery of all the fake Google search from horror someone make that happen. there is a much like the gossip girl one there's like a compendium of all the fake social media sites that law and order has used oh. before oh my gosh they're like he's friendme.com his my pal profile <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny good and it's all the same show which makes it even funnier yeah, I know. <laughs> they are true though you know they changed they're perennial no they're not there's about one every 10 years so all right. Um, I'd also like to get into, even though you said it's not your favorite thing to do, I'm going to do it again. I kind of want to talk about the scares in this movie. One of the things that I did find mildly effective is they toy with the scary trope of being buried alive slash locked into a small, sma- small space until you die. Kind of a mm, Poe-esque fear, kind of terrifying way to go. And um, just by mentioning it on screen, you'll get a little bit of a reaction from me. So some of that I found kind of interesting. Um, they use dementia in a way that I found to be a little um, half-baked and almost like a little inappropriate. Like if you're going to use dementia, like you better be careful and you better be doing it respectfully and interestingly. And it doesn't do that. And then another thing that really scared me was this kid's constant screaming. So what were the scares like for you in this film? Were they there? What were they trying to be like? Like, what was the world of horror in this film? So I'm going to be very nice. Um, I'm mm-hmm. certainly not a parent, so I don't know about the realities of having a kid. But I do think that on some level... I think these tropes are so popular is because they can resonate so widely. I just imagine having a kid and not knowing what's going on with them because it's hard to figure out kids, even when nothing is going on, let alone if they are possibly possessed or, <laughs> or presumed to be, you know, dead people. They are so dead people. I think that to its credit, I think there is something just innately scary about it, especially somebody you love and of course the relationship with the child is even more different because you've raised that kid and you've nurtured them and you've taken care of them and you've been like the sole influence on them and -hmm. it can be scary i imagine to suddenly discover that you no longer are that there's something else possibly influencing your kid and you Mm -hmm. really don't have a lot to do with it there's very Mm -hmm. little recourse you have to trying to figure that out so while it can be kind of tropey, I do think that there's something existentially scary about that. And I think that's why scary kids, possessed kids, disturbed children. I think it's why it endures. And it might hit me more if I ever become a parent. But I do want to give it credit for that. Because even though that's a scare that doesn't resonate with me quite as well, I think that there's definitely an audience that tends to to relate to that. And I think that's why I sort of writ large, I think motherhood in so many different ways is such a popular topic 
and horror because that is like an innately scary process. Like you are responsible for another life and it can be scary when you kind of lose control over that. Yeah, that's accurate for sure. And some of that is effective here. And when it is, it's due to the performance of Sarah Snook, in my opinion. Chad, Mm -hmm. I was wondering, could we get your final thoughts and star rating on Run, Rabbit, Run? So I'm sort of, I think, leaning between a two and a two and a half. Um, I want to give it the two and a half on account of Sarah Snook. Um, And because I do try to be very generous and I try to emphasize the things that I think worked because making a movie is hard and making a scary movie is hard. And it's not as easy as some audiences think when they go, that was so dumb. That could have been so much better because these people are really trying their damnedest to make it good. And even if that doesn't fully coalesce and come together in the final product, you know, I wasn't bored which is one of my big metrics. I thought Sarah Snook's performance was excellent. I think the sort of rural Australian setting mm-hmm. was great. I think that's always nice to have like a really stark kind of desolate landscape that feels distinct. So there were things that worked for me. So two and a half. Yeah, I think that's fair. This is often a very beautiful movie. In fact, they do use a storm effectively in the first half of the film or at least a sort of moody Australian setting which is actually not something I'm sure I've seen so many times before is um, stormy rainy Australia on film Um, and Sarah Snook we're saying it did a really beautiful job bringing the story to life making it a little bit believable I did find it a little bit boring but it wasn't anything too out of control I definitely I yeah Boring is also a kiss of death for me, and this didn't go too far. Definitely was engaged for the majority of the film. And I, too, will be giving this two and a half stars. In horror, I think there's almost like, hmm. There is often certain films where you do not feel like the filmmaker was trying or fully invested or totally in it. And this is not one of those cases. I agree with you. You do feel like these filmmakers, these performers, they're all fully committed committed to making the story come to life. You feel that. And I do think that's kind of what keeps you from falling asleep. So I do think it's a two and a half. There are things to like about it. There are things not to like. If you like the creepy kid trope, if you like the, like, if you like sort of thoughtful motherhood horror, this is definitely one to visit. If those are things that don't hit for you and you didn't like the Babadook, steer clear of this one, in my opinion. So let's get into conclusion territory. Chad, what else have you seen this year at Sundance? Right now, um, you know, I'm, I'm like working my way through the list. Um, I really enjoyed Birth Rebirth, which I think is mm-hmm. going to be hitting Shudder. Oh, and okay. I'm very, very excited for people to check that out because that similarly has some really strong performances. Marin Ireland is... I mean, she's always playing a kind of spooky, spooky character, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. she does really, really great work here. And that's another one, I think, like in my mother's skin, that it's sort of a slow unraveling. But when it starts unraveling, it gets grotesque and beautiful Mm. and frightening all at once. And there's actually some really compelling questions, I think. Mm hmm. 
raised in there. And it also, similarly to Run Rabbit Run, is it's definitely preeminently focused on motherhood. Mm-hmm. I think it does it more successfully, but I think that one's going to have a lot of crossover appeal. And I'm really, really excited for that one. Very cool. So I have seen, other than these two films, I have seen another Australian movie this year called Talk to Me, which so far is my favorite movie of the festival. Really, really, really um, sort of in line with the type of horror that I like the most, which is just simple, scary, urban legend supernatural horror i kind of think of it as like an australian punk rock insidious which sounds so stupid but it's not it's really effective and i'm really excited to talk more about that one on dread central and one that i'm excited about watching oh it has a really long title onyx and the fortuitous something talisman of souls i'm really excited about that one it looks really sort of high camp and interesting it's got jeffrey combs in it it's got uh, barbara crampton in it so I'm I'm ready for that one. That's very exciting. Yeah. I'm looking forward to Cat Person. Oh. Um, I have heard it's it seems to be very polarizing so far. Okay, um, I like that. Watching that shortly. Uh, allegedly, from what I can deduce from a few first reactions I've seen, is that it goes full born horror in its third act, which. Okay diverges i think considerably from the new yorker short story source material mm-hmm. and that seems to be the big point of contention that while cat person seems to flirt with being a horror movie it just firmly commits and Good. i'm looking forward to that because i love <laughs> a messy movie <laughs> i do too okay well i'm excited for that one that one's definitely i would say has been the buzz like from where i'm sitting it's been the buzziest I've been mm-hmm. hearing the most about that even from before first impressions because I think people were really interested in that article to see what they were going to do with it. Chad, where could you be found on the internet if you so wish to be found? So I can be found principally on Twitter at Chad is Collins, um, and of course at my Dread Central author page. is always a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. Well, Chad amazing having you on another episode of the podcast um we always love having you here and we hope to have you again very soon in the future thank you so much for having me it genuinely is always a pleasure (laughs) thank you so much for listening to development hell If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.